Morning, everybody. Have, hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Mine was great. I got a four-day weekend. That, that's the most exciting thing about Thanksgiving for me. That's what I'm thankful for. But hope you had a good one. So if you've been around for the past six weeks, you know that we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And we've only got one more week after this. We're, we're, actually, we're only going through half of Exodus. Um, but... Uh, only one more week after this, and uh, when I was assigned uh, this Sunday to speak, I got really excited when I saw the text that we were going over, because what I'm going to be talking about today is Exodus chapter 13 and chapter 14, and chapter 14 is the cool part. It's the crossing of the Red Sea, which is my favorite part of Exodus. I, I love this part. It's also my favorite part of the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know. The Ten Commandments has a special place in my heart, the, the movie, I mean, um, because uh, that was my mom and dad's first date, <laughs> all three hours and 40 minutes of it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, actually, actually, the, the movie was actually really good, the crossing of the Red Sea in, in you know, the 1956 special effects that they had, they actually did a pretty good job. But obviously, it, it took with my mom and dad, because three weeks later, they were engaged. And uh, yeah, so things moved right along for them. <laughs> so we're going to be going through chapters 13 and chapter 14 today. So if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 13. Now, I just have to apologize. Um, chapter 13 is kind of like divided up into little chunks, and it talks about a bunch of different things. And I'm going to kind of, I'm not necessarily going to go in order, but I'm going to kind of go through this topics that are in chapter 13. So, here we go. I'm going to jump around here. So, let's, let's go to chapter 13. Let's start with verse 3, okay? Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. On that day, I, I'm jumping to verse 8 here. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. You must keep this ordinance at the, appropriate, at the appointed time every year. So what I'd like to start by talking about is this word commemoration. I think there's a lot in chapter 13. In fact, there's a lot in the book of Exodus. There's a lot in the book of Genesis about the concept of commemoration. And um, what we see here is God setting up uh, opportunities for the people of Israel to commemorate the stuff that he's done. Okay? Later, um, we see this all through the Old Testament. Later, when God uh, sets up the the law at Mount Sinai, uh, after he gives the Ten Commandments, he also gives them instructions on how to keep, how to commemorate this time, how to keep these special holidays that he was going to set up. At important, we see this, at important historical events throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's ways that Israel, that God did commemoration, right? You remember when Jacob wrestled with the angel in the book of Genesis. And that was at this town, what would later become the town of Bethel. Um, 
And what Jacob did is the next morning after he wrestled with God is he set up a pile of rocks. And that pile of rocks was meant to be there for a long time so that every time he came, went back and forth or his family went back and forth, they'd see that pile of rocks and they would remember what happened there. Later in the Old Testament, we see that they would build a lot of altars, right? Everywhere that something special happened, they would build an altar there. And all this was commemoration. It was just put there to say, here is where God did such and such, okay? Um, these holidays, like Passover, were c commanded by God to be observed in specific ways. And if you didn't do it, then you were put out of the community. God considered it really important to remember what he did for people. Now, there's a good reason for this. And the reason is, we tend to forget. The problem is, we forget all the time. Okay? And God understands our ability for, to forget. Um, even when he man and that's why he mandates times and seasons for us to remember. I, I like that verse that says, so when your son comes and asks you and says, what does this mean? You can explain it, right? Do we do this? Do we have ways of commemorating? I, and, and, you know, I think we just did. I think this holiday that we just had, and we just went around and we shared with each other, what's the thing that you're really thankful for? Well, that's, that's a way of commemorating what God has done for you, right? Uh, other, you know, I, I was looking at my wedding ring this morning, and it's like, this is a way to commemorate what God has done for me. And if my, my kids, and they do ask questions like that, what's that thing around your finger? What does that mean? Well, this is a way that we can teach our kids about something that, that's important that God did in the past. Even in, even in the church, you know, a couple weeks ago, we had communion. The whole idea of communion was that Jesus gave it to us so that we could commemorate, that we could remember that he gave up his body and blood for us. So these are all really important things, and it's all important things that we need to do. So my question for you is, do you find ways to memorialize what God has done for your life? And I, th I think that's important, okay? God's, God says in those verses, he says, um, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand, a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is going to be on your lips. I, I always thought that was kind of interesting. It, because it, a sign on your head, a sign of your hand, that this law of the Lord was going to be on your lips. You know, the Jews took that seriously. They took it literally. And I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of um, phylacteries, okay? Does anyone know what a phylactery is? Phylactery is, some, is the way that the ancient Jews, and even modern Jews do it today, where they have these little boxes, and they write the scriptures on little pieces of paper, and they fold them up, and they put them inside these boxes. And you wear these boxes on your forehead and on your hand. Okay, and so they, they took this scripture literally, okay? And, and they even do in modern days, modern uh, Orthodox Jews still do that. Now, later when we read in the New Testament, Jesus kind of like put down the Pharisees. He was saying, you know, you guys make your phylacteries long. You see that 
all wrapped around his arm there. And his point was, all you're trying to do is you're trying to show other people how holy you are. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that this is what God was talking about when he said, you shall bind the law of the Lord to your forehead, to your hand. I think what he was saying is, the law of the Lord is supposed to be always on your mind. It's always supposed to be, where's the hand? The hand is something you do things with and your mouth, okay? The meaning is the law of the Lord should be in our thoughts, it should be in our actions, and it should be in our words constantly. And in other words, the law of the Lord should become your worldview, your lifestyle. And that's what God desires from us. And, you know, just, just to go off a little bit, I, I'm a child of the 70s, okay? I grew up in the 70s, and it's kind of a weird time. <laughs> it was, but I, I don't know if many of you remember, but during the 70s was the time when all these <clears throat> Christian movies started coming out, okay? And some, we still have Christian movies today, the ones back in the 70s were actually worse than the ones today, but <clears throat> they, they came out with this movie called A Thief in the Night in the 70s, okay? I don't know if you if anybody ever seen that. Don't go see it unless you, you can afford to have a therapist talk to you later because, because it's a really freaky movie. I, when I saw it when I was like, you know, 13 or whatever, but it's, it's all about, it's based on Revelation chapter 13 and it's about you know, all these people get raptured in the middle of the night and, and, uh, and then uh, the people who are left end up getting these marks, you know, based on Revelation 13, a mark on your forehead, a mark on your hand. And I don't know, I think this is a direct parallel to what the law that God gave in the Old Testament. I, I, I think, the, just in my opinion, the mark of the Antichrist is not some tattoo or something that put you, you put on your forehead or hand. It's your worldview. It's, are you thinking like the Antichrist? Are you acting? Uh, are you taking on the Antichrist worldview? So it's just my, my opinion. I think it's a direct uh, parallel to uh, what was said here. If we go on in Exodus, we get to this stuff about yeast, okay? Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere in your borders. Okay? What's the big deal with yeast? If any of you have ever been, uh, maybe you have some Jewish friends, or maybe you come from a Jewish background, I don't know, but during Passover, it was always a big deal um, in the first couple days of Passover, and the kids all got involved with this too, is what you do is you sweep out your house. You, you clean your kitchen really well because you want to get all the yeast out of your house. And so this is something you can do to commemorate and do with the kids, just sweeping, the action of sweeping all the yeast out of your house. So this is an important part of the traditional preparation of the Passover is eliminating anything with yeast in it. So why is this so important? Well, according to what we've already studied, uh, the Israelites did not eat leavened bread during the Exodus because there was no time. Uh, they were told, hey, just, just put the, the dough on your backs in your, and carry it around with you. There's no time to raise the bread. There's no time to bake it. Just bake unleavened bread. Okay, so it was 
yeast has always been prohibited as far as the reenacting of the story from Exodus. But this historical explanation, I think, is only a part of it. Um, If we go on and you read in the book of Leviticus, chapter 2, if you're a farmer uh, in ancient Israel, and there was something called the Festival of the First Fruits, and you brought your first fruits to the temple in Jerusalem and you offered it to God. Well, your first fruit's going to be your, like your grain. Maybe you're a, you raise wheat. Um, and you bring that to the, to the temple. So and the, in Leviticus tap, chapter 2, it was stated that no yeast was allowed to be brought to the altar of God. Okay? There was various ways to, to offer your first fruits, to offer your uh, wheat. You could burn it on the altar. You could fry it in a pan. Um, but there was no yeast that was allowed uh, during that offering. It had to be unleavened, which is the word matzah. Um, Now, leavened bread was fine to be used during the rest of the year. I mean, the Israelites ate leavened bread, but during that week of Passover, you couldn't have any yeast in your house. Um, So... Why is this? Well, various uh, Jewish scholars kind of came up with an explanation. They said uh, that fermentation is equivalent to decay and corruption. And for this reason, it was uh, prohibited on the altar. Leaven was a symbol of death and life in that it smells like death, (coughs) but it produces the growth of the bread or beer and the wine. So while it was acceptable for the people to eat leaven during normal times, it was prohibited Uh, on the altar as an offering to God because God is life itself and thus leaven is not fit for sacrifice. And it's also interesting that God kept saying, I want to bring you into this land of milk and honey. He was bringing them out from death into life. And I can't think of better examples of life than milk and honey. You know, so, so there's a lot of symbolism there. So basically, during the week of Passover, every Israelite home and the land of Israel basically became an altar to God, holy and set apart, because this was God's people, and we were commem- commemorating what God did. Kind of cool. So let's move on. Let's go to uh, verses, verse 11, Okay. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to God. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So this is we're getting into the whole concept of redemption and redemption of the firstborn, okay? Um, First, he talks about the animals, okay? Uh, Animals, if they were the firstborn animal, you offered that animal as a sacrifice to God. You took that animal and took it to the temple and it was a sacrifice, okay? Now, if it was a valuable animal like like a donkey, Uh, you could redeem that animal. You could, instead of offering up the donkey, you could offer up a lamb in its place. Then God uh, starts talking about the redemption of 
sons, okay? The redemption of people. He said the firstborn son uh, was dedicated to God for his service, okay? A good example of this is if you read in 1 Samuel, uh, you remember the story of Samuel. His mother, Hannah, couldn't have any kids. She was barren, and she went to the temple, and she prayed to God uh, that she would be able to get pregnant, and she did, and that turned out to be Samuel. And when Samuel was weaned, he was taken to the temple, and he was offered to serve at the temple for the rest of his life. Um, so he was, he was the firstborn, and he was offered to the service of God. Now, the Levites in the Old Testament were, all, were an entire uh, clan of, of Israel that were devoted to the service of God in the temple. And if you had a firstborn son, you could redeem that firstborn son. You didn't have to take him to the temple, but a Levite would basically take his place and serve at the temple for your firstborn son. So that, that was called redemption. And so a census was taken, and it was determined how many firstborn sons there were, and that's how many Levites were appointed to serve at the temple. And the people supported them with their gifts and offerings. Okay. So what's the big deal about firstborn? This is kind of interesting because in ancient cultures, and even today, the firstborn is a really big deal, okay? The firstborn son receives the inheritance. The firstborn son is who the family looked to to be their leader and who all authority went to. Societies are like this today. Um, when um, many of you know, Sandy and I served in China for a couple years, and China's an interesting uh, culture because they don't have a social security system like we do. So who you look to when you get old and when you retire is you look to your kids. They support you as you get older. Well, that was a big problem when, when we were over there because many of you are aware that they have this one-child policy. Okay, One-child policy, you can't have any more than one child Otherwise, you have to pay this exorbitant fine that nobody can afford. Um, but, so the problem is, if you ended up having a girl, when the girl gets married, she goes over to the husband's family. If you have a son, the son, when he grows up, can support you. And so there was this big push if you had a son to, oh, you have to do really good in school, you have to go to college, you got to get a really good job because you need to support us when we get older, okay? So, so in, in China, it was your firstborn son is your hope and your future, okay? And that's the same concept as we see here. Your firstborn is your hope and your future. The Israelites put their trust in their firstborn as their hope and future. So think of how drastic it was when Passover occurred and God put to death all the firstborn of Egypt. That was their hope and future, and now it was gone. God was pronouncing death on the hope and future of the people of Egypt. Now God says to Israel, all of your firstborn belong to me. They are mine. Why would he say that? 
Well, the Israelites too put their hope and future in their next generation. But God was saying, I am your hope and future. It's no longer in your sons. It's no longer in your children. It's in me. You need to put your hope in, in me. When you think back to Abraham, Abraham's walking up the, the mountain with his son Isaac, and they're carrying the wood, and he's carrying the knife, and he knows that God's asked him to sacrifice his, his only son, the one who was promised to be the father of many generations. It must have been hard for Abraham because he's walking up that mountain. He's going, How, God, what is God doing here? How is he going to do this? But he believed that God was going to fulfill his promises, that even if Isaac died, that uh, God would raise him back to life because God was saying, you will trust only in me. Don't trust in this child, even though it took 100 years for you to get this child. Now, I believe every one of us has a firstborn son. Maybe, maybe you don't have kids, but you have something that you're putting your hope and trust in the future in. Think about it. There's something that you're putting your hope and trust for in the future. Maybe it's your 403B Maybe it's your annuity. Maybe it's your great job. Maybe you are trusting in your kids to support you when you get to be old. But what God is saying is, you don't trust in those things. You need to trust in me. That's hard to do. Maybe it is your children. Maybe you, there, there's nothing wrong with loving your children, but putting, when you put your hope and trust in them for your future, that's when things get screwed up. So in days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. And that is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem every one of my firstborn sons. All right, so let's move on. So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. You know, this was, this was interesting because uh, they could have gone a short route to get to the promised land, but they didn't. Because if you went that way, you would have to go through the land of the Philistines, which were a very warlike people. So God knew at the time that the people, two million people, uh, 70% of which were women and children were not ready to face war at this time. So God took them a different way. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid and you must carry my bones up from you in this place. Joseph's bones were Israel's common connection to the past. And they were the connection to God's promise that he would someday lead them out uh, uh, and take them to the promised land. So they took special care to remember to bring uh, Joseph's bones with us. They took special care to remember what was good in the past. All right, so now we're going to move into chapter 14. Okay, so here comes the crossing of the Red Sea here. Okay. So 
the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haharoth. Pharaoh will think, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. So this, this was a military tragedy. Okay? God's, God's telling his people, I want you to go up against the sea here. And there's, he cut off any route for their escape. From a, from a military point of view, this was a nightmare. It's indefensible. Uh, and they were basically sitting ducks. Okay? But God did this for one reason, and that was to draw Pharaoh out. Remember, we've already studied about how many times God hardened Pharaoh's heart in order to bring himself glory. And this would, this would be the last time that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay? And then, this is, this is the uh, Egyptian speaking. What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and lost their services. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. So, the minute the Egyptians realized that their laundry was starting to pile up and there was no one to bring them their slippers anymore, they realized, we've made a huge mistake here. Let's go after them. And oh, by the way, they're backed up against the sea. This is going to be easy. This is going to be a cakewalk. Okay? As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching out after them. And they were terrified and called out to the Lord. So the Israelites at this point are despairing. Do you blame them? Not really, uh, because they're in a, in a terrible situation. But then they start crying out to the Lord and saying things like, they said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here in the desert to die? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Didn't they say that to Moses? I don't remember them saying that, but... They, they're in despair. They, they thought it'd be better uh, for them to just stay in Egypt. So they start getting sarcastic, start getting angry. And what they did is they just exposed an idolatry in their hearts. And I think this idolatry is something that we all have. I can relate, you know. I miss the familiar and safe, okay, to the point where sometimes we're willing to rewrite history and say, well, things were so much better back in the past when they really weren't, okay? But we get, we get scared of the future, especially when we don't know what the future holds. The Israelites had no idea what was coming up. All they knew was they were backed up against the sea and the chariots were coming. It did not look good. Okay. So, and we do the same thing, don't we? They still believed that the Egyptians were more powerful than their God. And they still believed that their hope and future was in Egypt. Okay? But they, what they needed to do is be still. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. I'm really good at this. I'm really good at when things get really rough. I'm, ju I, I'm just quiet. And I just let the Lord take over. I'm not like that at all. You can ask my wife. When we, when we get in trouble, 
what's the first thing we do? We, we run our mouths, we complain, uh, we try to get people on our side because we're right. Uh, and here's the thing that I do, is I get busy trying to solve the problem myself, right? That's, that's what I do. How are we, what are we going to do about this? Oh, let's see what I can do. We are still chasing those old idols. I, I, I'm trying to make myself comfortable again. I'm, I'm trying to make things feel familiar again. It's really hard to be silent. But we need to, to cling to the truth that the Lord is the one who contends for us. He is the one who fights for us. Now, fortunately, the Israelites were stuck. They were, they were too freaked out to do anything else, okay? They had, and they had nowhere to go. They had no choice, okay? So here's what God did. And as I read this, I want you guys to, to kind of think uh, about, is this familiar? Is this section of Scripture, does it sound familiar to you? Uh, let me just read through it. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Now, throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and their left. Does this sound familiar? When I read that, I, I, I think about the creation epic, right? Because remember, God separated the light from the darkness, right? And then the Spirit of God, it says God sent a wind to blow over the waters. It, the, the Greek word for that is pneuma, um, which we find in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Pneuma, which is the same word for the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God was over the waters, and he separated the water from the dry land. This is a creation epic, and I think that's kind of cool because, because the Lord was doing a creative work for his people. This was the creation of the nation of Israel. Kind of cool. So they walked through, and then the Egyptians come through. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. The Israelites passed through the waters of judgment. And when they got through, I, th I think we tend to skip over this verse. When they got through, they saw the bodies of the Egyptian soldiers starting to wash up on shore and the you know, bits and pieces of their armor and their chariots. We always skip over that verse, but I think it's, there's something profound here. Uh, I think what God was saying is that, look, look at what 
you were so terrified of. Just a couple hours ago, you thought this was over. But now look at what you were so terrified of, what you used to fear, what you used to hold in higher honor and higher regard than me. And look at them, they're all dead on the shore. Put your trust in me. And I think we need to do that too, right? Although we've been freed, we find that our captors still pursue us, right? They're waiting to pounce on us. The enemy comes against us and he unmasks our sin. He attacks our unbelief and we panic, okay? Unbelief challenges our faith and God commands us to stand firm and walk faithfully through the waters, even though they're terrifying, but we can stand firm and walk through them. Our God is a God who delivers, okay? What we see, if you take the entire Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation, the whole thing is a story about the God who is delivering us. He is the great deliverer. He's been setting us free. He releases us from bondage, and he delivers us from slavery. That's what the whole Bible is about. In the midst of misery, we can expect the miraculous. Every work of his mighty hand is moving us from death to life, from bondage to the promised land, the land he has promised us, the land flowing with milk and honey. But the problem is our sin. Our sin clouds our vision, our toil, and our weariness. It makes us weak. And we get foolish and confused. So we tend to cling to our bondage rather than crying out for God's deliverance. You know, there's a twisted security in slavery. There's a certain security when it comes to slavery. Just like the Israelites, we often want to turn back, don't we? We want to turn back and, uh, because it's more appealing to our human side to walk by sight right? God wants us to walk by faith. We often lose our hope in God's timing, right? The Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. And I'm sure all that time they were praying, God, please deliver us. God's timing doesn't always fit in with our timing when we're in deep pain, okay? We've cried out for deliverance for something, and yet we're still in Egypt, held in the grip of some kind of bondage. And it often feels like God is silent. Has he, has he heard our cries? If he, if he has heard our cries, why hasn't he acted? Why hasn't he stretched out his mighty arm with signs and wonders and delivered us from our oppression? I think all of us have dealt with those questions, right? We've all had our bondages, sins that we've been stuck in, that we've asked God to deliver us from. And yet we, we get frustrated because we're like, why hasn't he delivered us yet? I'd like to uh, take a minute and jump, jump to the New Testament. And you guys can look this up if you want. Uh, otherwise, I'll just tell you the story. This is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And let me just lay out the story here. So you guys remember the, the pool of Bethesda. It was this pool in Jerusalem, and everybody who had some sort of medical issue or whatever would come and they would plop down by the pool, and, uh, you know, it's a strange story, but anytime the waters were stirred, 
I guess the first person who got in the water was healed. Kind of cool. But this is a story about this invalid who had been coming to the waters for 38 years. And the problem was he was an invalid, so he's laying on his mat, and he can't get into the water. He can't be the first one to get in the water when the water is stirred. But he kept faithfully coming for 38 years. Jesus comes up to him and he says, he asked for his story, and then he asks, he asks an interesting question. Jesus asks, do you want to get well? Now, that's, that's a telling question, okay? There's two things that can stand in the way of our deliverance for some, from something. The first one is denial, okay? Often we pretend that we want to get well, but we really don't. Or, or denial is really re- refusing to believe that you have a problem. And we all do that too. The second part is, do, do you want to get well? Do you really want to get well? Often we're afraid to enter the water and, start, and risk a new life. Our sins are kind of like old friends to us, right? Can we leave the secure bondage of Egypt and risk the wilderness leading to the promised land? Now, the guy at the pool had a pure heart. Jesus saw that, and Jesus said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go. But the question is to the rest of us. If, if we're to, to be delivered, we, we have to want it. Can you admit your struggle and admit that it has you enslaved? We love our sins in a way. Uh, there's a famous quote by St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And I think, I think we're all a little bit like that, Right? We, we have a hard time accepting God's deliverance because of forgetfulness and fear. Okay? Our fear robs us of the wonders of what God has prepared for us. Those, who, those of you who know me know I like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think that's, that's where I am many times. You know, by faith, the Israelites stepped toward the Red Sea. They didn't know how they were going to be delivered. They didn't know that that thing was going to open up. They didn't know the glory of the promised land that was ahead of them. And they didn't know God's timing in leading them to it. They faltered, and we're going to see in the future, they faltered, they struggled, they turned away from God uh, because of their weakness. But he was the one who was always faithful. And God is the one who's always faithful to you in your struggles. And he wants you to lead you to that land. Can you relate? Can you relate to the Israelites? Do you know that you're in bondage, but you're afraid of what freedom really looks like? Or maybe you're in denial about your bondage. I think that's something we need to ask ourselves and hold each other accountable to, um, that we are in bondage and that we need his deliverance. And he is faithful. He's going to do it. He's made a way for our deliverance, but we need to trust him.
Can you just pray with me? Lord, we, we have a hard time trusting in you completely because sometimes it seems like we go a long time and you don't hear our prayers. Uh, we don't, sometimes we don't see the miraculous deliverance. We're like the Israelites and we just pray and pray and pray. But Lord, our true desire is that we would be delivered from the sin, delivered from the bondage that holds us. And uh, we want to follow you and trust you and uh, would you lead us in your way? Would you lead us uh, in the path that you'd have for us? Because we know that it's far better than anything we've ever uh, experienced. Uh, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men what God has prepared for those who love him. We pray this in Jesus' name.